glad that you guys are, are here today. Just want to let you know, um, on October 2nd, uh, we're going to be having another one of our Baptism Sundays. We do these about three or four times a year. And uh, we, we did a big one in, in May where I think we had about, what, 18 or 19, a lot of them students, kids, others. Uh, but all of our baptisms are always are re- really open for everybody. But for those of you that may have been thinking about it or maybe missed the last one or sometimes there's always scheduling conflicts or whatnot, um, this is, a, this is a, a way for you to participate. If you want to scan this QR code, I think it will take you to the church app and you'll be able to sign up if that's something uh, that you're interested in doing. We'll have some teaching maybe a week or two before that, uh, but this is when our next Baptism Sunday is coming, October 2nd, so we're, what, about five, six weeks away uh, from that. Um, so if it's something that you would like to be a part of, then, uh, th- then we would encourage you to be able to, uh, to do that as well. So I think these are around the building somewhere. You can probably uh, find them or on the announcement scroll at the end um, if that's something uh, you're interested in participating in. Uh, we're in our Galatians study about what does it mean to live life in the Spirit. And I want to be very honest that today's sermon, I've waited a very long time to preach. I've waited a long time to preach what I'm going to preach about today. And, and I would describe it as today is a big sermon. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, but Sheldon, you're the pastor. You can preach whatever you want, whenever you want. And that's probably, there's some truth to that. But I also believe that sometimes you have to wait for sermons to come to you. You have to wait until there's a bit of a revealing that it's time to share what you want to share. And I've had this heavy on my heart for several weeks, several months, and, and I want to share it today because it is going to be a big and slightly longer sermon. I'm just letting you know that ahead of time. We've adjusted our service, but um, I really this is, a, this is a big deal sermon today. I've called the sermon today Kingdom Theology because I want us to actually step into what does it mean for us to be people of the kingdom and how should we gravitate around our thinking um, and, and, and how we do things and how we step through things and into things because it matters. It's a big deal. Uh, today we're going to get to a portion of the book of Galatians that where, where the Galatian church is battling for equality and identity. Now, need I remind you, this book was written about 2,000 years ago. We're still fighting about this today. Every generation has the fight about equality and identity, and it's not always healthy conversations. We have not yet figured out what it means for us to have identity. If we look back in the, in the New Testament, even in the ministry of Jesus, we see that for the disciples, their, their fight was always who is the greatest. If you read the four Gospels, this is what they are consistently fighting about. They're on the road, they're doing something, and they're all jockeying for position, right? Who's going to be next to Jesus? Who's the, most, who's the favorite disciple? Who's, who's the best follower on doing these things? In fact, James and John even get their mom to ask Jesus, Hey, Jesus, you know, when you, when you come into your kingdom, can you uh, make sure my boys are on your right and on your left? And Jesus responds to them and says, It's not my place to give them that. Because the mom doesn't understand that what she is asking for, if Jesus had granted it when he was being crucified on the right and on the left, would have been James and John. But they're always fighting. And and Jesus calls them out so many times. What were you guys arguing about on the road? And they almost always say nothing. But every time Jesus responds to them about who is the greatest, this fight, this argument that they're having, Jesus always uses language 
of kingdom over empire. What he is saying is, listen, there is an empire, there is a world that wants your attention, that wants, w- wants you to submit to it. But, but the kingdom matters more. The kingdom is a bigger deal. And, and we have to kind of ask these questions, well, what is the kingdom and what is the empire? Well, in, 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 in early you know, Christianity, right before Jesus comes, the Romans basically owned the world. Before that, it was the, you know, the Egyptians or, or the Assyrians or whoever it might have been. And God gives the people the law through Moses after they've been you know, exited from Israel, uh, from Egypt, the Israelites. And then what they do with that law is they take that law and they basically create their own little empire. And they forget that the law was meant to lead them to the kingdom, but they violate that and they create another empire. And so when Jesus comes, he's coming with a corrective. And it's a very challenging moment for these disciples because they're still fighting about what's our place? Where are we? How are we doing this? This is why John the Baptist and then ultimately Jesus often start their ministries and and proclaiming by telling people the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is is here. The kingdom, what what does that mean? Because we see everything around us but we don't see a lot of kingdom. And Jesus is going to explain to them what the kingdom actually is because they've kind of missed it along the way. Now, I'm going to use a couple big words now uh, just to prove to you that I went to seminary so you you don't feel like you've lost your money. But we have these two different writings um, that we study, One, one called the Apocrypha, one called the pseudepigrapha. So when you go to work tomorrow, people say, what did you do at church? And you're around the water cooler or coffee. say, well, I've been reading, you know, the Apocrypha. And and you can just use that as a bragging moment or something. Let me tell you what these words mean, just so that you understand what I'm about to say. Uh, The word grapha, which you can see in both of these words, is where we get the word graphic from today. It means writing or illustration. That's what it means. The word apo in Greek and Latin mean between. The between writings is what that means. Between the Old Testament, the ending of the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament that we call the intertestamental period, it's about 400 years where there are, there's nothing written. God doesn't give any inspiration, as far as we can tell, between these times. And the Apocrypha is kind of a historical account. You have books like Maccabees and Syriac and Ecclesiasticus and some of these things. And while they're, even though originally in 300, you know, 325 under Constantine, when they decided what books were going to be in the Bible, the first edition actually included the Apocrypha. And then there was some fighting, and so they took it out, and then they put it back in, and they took it out and put it back in, and, and it's kind of had this weird stepchild relationship with the rest of the scriptures. Then you have the pseudepigrapha. Pseudo obviously means false. These are called the false writings. In other words, if a new gospel emerged in 200 AD written by Paul, well, Paul's been dead for 150 years, so even though it might be sort of generationally done, uh, it's, it's kind of not included in Scripture. Now, I want to be clear. These books are not included in Scripture. They are helpful tools for us to understand some historical things in between. But in my opinion, the greatest description of what the kingdom actually is comes from a writing called the Gospel of Thomas. I'm going to put it up here for you. It was found in 1945 in Nakamadi. Um, it was never included in the original Gospels. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, so it's around that same time. But I love this description of the kingdom. And the Gospel of Thomas supposedly was written in the actual words of Jesus. But I want you to hear these things. He says, the kingdom of God is inside you and all around you. Not in buildings of wood and stone, 
split a piece of wood, and I am there. Turn a stone, and you will find it. This is kind of deeply near the theology of what Jesus is saying. When he says the kingdom of God is near, they're all looking at the temple. And he's saying, that's not it. He's, he's opening their framework to what the kingdom actually is. The second response that Jesus gives when his disciples are fighting is not only kingdom over empire, but authority over power. E- Jesus almost has nothing good to say about leadership. Leadership is our obsession, not his. In fact, he almost always says, don't lead like these people because they're obsessed with power. When Jesus gets to the end of the gospel and he goes, this is after he's been crucified in Matthew 28, and he's in Bethany, and he goes up the mountain to ascend into heaven. His disciples don't know that that's happening. He gives them what we commonly call the Great Commission, where he says, all authority has been given to me. Go and, and do these things. He doesn't say all power has been given to me. We assume that. But what we learn is that authority yields power, not the other way around. Authority comes first. In fact, if power comes first, it's almost always going to be unhealthy. If authority comes first, it's almost always going to be positive. And this is how Jesus responds when he talks to his disciples. Now in Galatia, if we bring it a little closer here, in Galatia they're having what we call the Jew-Gentile conflict. They're having a fight about Jews and Gentiles. Why are they having this fight? Well, because Jews have been the chosen people of God, and the Gentiles have always been the pagans. And now suddenly there is this thing called the church where these two cultures and groups of people are being thrust together, and guess what? It's not going well. And so Paul writes these words in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Let's read this together today it says this paul says before the coming of this faith speaking about the faith in jesus we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed again speaking about jesus so the law was our guardian until christ came that we might be justified by faith well that's new now this faith has come, we're no longer, longer under the guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, young nor old, black nor white, rich nor poor. You can add whatever you want in there. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're part of God's story and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is as long as you as long as an heir is under age, there's no difference. He is they are no different from a slave, although they own the whole estate. Listen, slaves, women, children are not allowed to own property. And they're saying before that is kind of kind of given to its fruition, you know, you're you're all kind of the same even though you own everything. It says, verse 2, chapter 4, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father or his parents. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. He's referring to the law. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as children. Because you are God's children. And God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And the spirit calls out Abba, meaning father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. It's a beautiful passage of scripture, and Paul is doing some heavy lifting here. It's a Jew-Gentile conflict in Galatia. That's the problem that they're having. They're having a hard time between, okay, how do we, how do we, how do we allow these two groups of people to come together in powerful ways? And what Paul's response is this, in order to overcome the Jew-Gentile conflict or this conversation about equality and identity, they must accept their identity in Christ. He's saying, if you want to overcome this, you've got to figure out who you are in Christ. And you've got to start there. Because aren't we the same way? We like to see the differences between us and other people and focus on that. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Find out who you are in Christ. Start there. And then God's equality, which, by the way, you shouldn't have either, will help you understand what is going on here. And then he goes on to say that our new identity in Christ is that we are children, not slaves. In the law, you were slaves. But God has sent his son so that you can be children. So don't try to become slaves again. I mean, how ridiculous would that be? People are freed and they're, they're allowed to be children. They're heirs, they're adopted, and they say, no, I'd rather be a slave. So let me, let me, let me kind of switch gears a little bit here just, just to kind of help us understand how this works. We're going to do a little Theology 101, okay? Theology 101, and I, I've written it out as a four-step process, and I'll kind of, and then, and then I'm going to show you how to do it. And I'm not even done with my introduction yet, so hang on, okay? Okay, if we're doing theology, let me, let me do this. In order for us to understand equality and identity, we must do theology. That's what Paul does. If you want to know how to fix this and where God is, you're going to have to ask God and look at God. That's what theology means. We look to God. He's saying, if you want to understand how you're going to get over this, you've got to start with who you are and what God's calling you to, which means we have to do theology. We don't just start with us and go, well, I'm uncomfortable with this, or I don't like this. We've got to say, okay, God, what is your word in order to do that? That's the first step. We've got to acknowledge that we have to seek God in the midst of this. Now, the problem is, number two, in order to do good theology, we have to understand history or context. We have to say, what's really going on? What's the history behind this? Where did the Jews come from? Where did the Gentiles come from? How are their belief systems different? How do they interact with each other? What are the problems that they're probably facing? And so you've got to spend a little bit of time doing some history. The problem is, in order to do good history, you have to understand the bigger picture. You've got to step back a bit and say, hey, we're not going to look at this in Galatia only. We've got to look at it somewhere else. And this is where we have these other fancy words called the confirmation bias. We've got to overcome our confirmation bias, which simply means this. A confirmation bias is when we see what we really want to see. Okay? This happens to us every single day. If you're mad and upset with somebody, have you ever noticed that they, whatever they do sets you off, even if that's not what they're really doing? Because you're mad and you, you want to see that. You want to see what's bad. But in order for us to overcome the confirmation bias, we have to step into equality and, and identity. So you see how the circle works? And we just kind of run the circle, this loop, over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to show you how
you how this works, and then we're going to actually do some theology today. Okay. There's something in Scripture in Acts chapter 10 called the Cornelius story. Let me explain to you why this story is significant. If you read the book of Acts, the first nine chapters of the book of Acts are about one thing. It's about Jesus ascending into heaven, Jesus empowering his apostles and his disciples. They get up on the day of Pentecost. This is Peter, not Paul. He gets up on the day of Pentecost. He proclaims to people that, hey, the law is over. Jesus has come. You guys accidentally killed him. And there's 3,000 people that it says are converted on that day that give their lives to the Lord. There's this huge baptism ceremony that takes place. A couple weeks later, that number's up to 5,000. And there it goes. Wildfire. The church has begun. And the first part of the book of Acts is a very Jewish story. Jewish story. Acts chapter 2, the first church starts in Jerusalem, a Jewish city. The first people that are there are people that are there for Pentecost and Passover. They're all Jews. The first converts of the church are Jewish. So they feel like it's Israel 2.0, which it kind of is. And then you have Acts chapter 9, where Paul, then Saul, comes into the picture. Saul has been a great critic of the church. He has killed Christians. And he has this experience on the road to Damascus, and God says, hey, I love your passion. You're just on the wrong side of this. You need to get on the right side. And Paul becomes, uh, you know, becomes this great defender of the faith. And a lot of the early Jews have a hard time with Paul. I mean, wouldn't you? If Paul was responsible for some of your family being in prison or even being killed, and suddenly now he's the poster child for what God can do, that, that would be a hard turn. The hardest turn comes in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we have Peter again, not Paul, Peter. Paul's converted in chapter 9, but their, their paths really haven't crossed too much until that point. But in Acts chapter 10, something profound takes place. So what happens is, Peter's hanging out at, at a home. He's waiting for dinner to be finished, so he goes and sits on the roof. And it says he's praying, and then he sees a vision, which I interpret to mean he, he, he dozed off, okay? He just fell asleep. He took a nap. He didn't mean to. It just happened, right? But then he sees a vision. He sees this vision of the sheep coming down from heaven with all these unclean animals, animals that the Jews didn't eat, like, you know, eagles and lizards and snakes and pigs. And God tells him, you need to, you need to eat these things in this vision. And he doesn't quite know what's, what's happening. So in verse 17, Paul's waking up. He says, I mean, Peter's waking up. He says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Now, let me tell you about this story. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is a Gentile. But the Bible tells us that he is a God-fearing Gentile. And that God tells him to send some of his people to go and find Peter. And it says they come and they stand outside the gate. Now, isn't that significant? You've got to pay attention. There's a lot of what we call threshold language in this text. Meaning there's a lot of people coming up to doorways and stopping before they're invited over the threshold. That's what the whole chapter 10 is about. And if we pay attention to that, you can see something really powerful in the midst of it. But they come and they stop at the gate. Why do they stop at the gate? Because they're Gentiles. And, Ju and Gentiles don't go into Jews' houses. And Jews don't go into Gentile houses. They know the boundaries. 
they know what the context of this is. It says they stop at the gate. Verse 23, it says, after God tells Peter, hey, these guys are okay, then he invites them into his house to be guests. Well, that's kind of a big move, wouldn't you think? But then Peter goes with them, again, because God tells him, hey, these, these are safe people, go with them. Verse 25, it says, as Peter entered the house of Cornelius, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up and said, listen, it's, I'm not him. I'm just a man, just like you. We're in this together. And then, and then Peter goes inside after that. So he walks into the courtyard first. They have this moment. Then he goes into the house and found a large crowd of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. I think that's phenomenal. That the first thing he says when he goes into their house is to describe the rules that they already know. He points out how they're different. Well, that's just because this is Peter. Let's be honest. But God has shown me that I'm not to call anyone impure or unclean. Verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Something is happening to Peter. He's starting to see what God is actually doing and what the kingdom actually is. Verse 39, it says, we are witnesses, talking about him and the, the other apostles. We are witnesses of everything he did, meaning Jesus, in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He is preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And then I got to love verse 44 here at the end. While Peter was still speaking these words, code, he is preaching too long, and God says, I got this. Don't you ever wish our churches just operated that way? Can I get an amen on that one? Like, yeah, just preaching a little bit, and God's like, okay, Sheldon, you just, you, you just sit in the corner, buddy. Good job. You did great. I got it from here. While Peter is still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, meaning the Jews, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues or languages and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water, for they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Something amazing happens in this moment. But Peter has a decision in this story. Peter is willing to go to Cornelius' house because God told him to. But he stands outside the door. He, he's got to do something. Peter has to cross that threshold, both, both literally and theologically, to find the kingdom and find the truth. Let me tell you what's happening in this story in chapter 10. Peter can even accept that someone like Paul, a good Jew who was a bit misguided, could be included. But he stands outside the threshold. And God says, if you want to find the kingdom, you're going to have to step over it 
and go and find the truth and find the kingdom, and it's on the other side of this doorway that you're afraid of. You're going to have to step away from your view of empire and your view of power and your own biases, and you're going to have to cross that threshold so that you will ultimately find the kingdom. Yes, he physically had to walk across the threshold, but something is happening theologically with Peter in this moment. He is realizing that the kingdom of God is bigger and more inclusive than he ever thought. He can get on board with bad Jews that become Christians, but he realizes in this moment that it has never occurred to him that even Gentiles would be included. That's why God has to pour out the Holy Spirit so that he goes, oh my goodness, I didn't even know this was possible. In my wildest dreams, if you'd asked me a million times, I never would have said Gentiles are included. And that's where the words of Jesus probably echoed in his, in his ears to say, the kingdom of God is near. And it's bigger than you thought it was. And if you ever read the Bible, we realize very quickly that the kingdom of God is bigger than we think it is. And this conclusion that Peter has changes the theological questions that he has. It changes the way that he sees God. It changes the way that he sees his own life. It changes the way that he will do theology forever. What he learns in this moment is a lesson that we need to learn as well, and that is that kingdom theology is challenging theology. If the theology that we have only confirms what we already believe, it's probably not good theology. Because kingdom theology is always pushing boundaries and taking us to uncomfortable places. That's why it's called kingdom theology. If it was called people theology, it'd be easy. We'd have all the answers. But kingdom theology is out on that threshold that we have to cross. Okay, good news, bad news. Good news is, that's the end of my introduction. We're halfway done. Okay, so get a drink of coffee and buckle in because the next part's exciting. How do we deal with difficult theological topics? In churches, we have to do this from time to time. Unless you go to a, a church that just never wants to deal with anything difficult, but we're not going to do that. We're going to try to actually do theology and hear from God and follow him where he leads us. How should we ask questions with kingdom eyes rather than our own eyes? Because that's what happens to Peter in the Cornelius story. Let me give you a couple of examples, one that's not controversial and then one that is. In the Bible, if you read passages, there are passages in the Bible where God commands his people to go into a town and to kill everything. Men, women, children, animals. It is a God-ordained genocide. There's no denying this. This is in the Bible. And then you have other passages like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount that says, no, no, no. For your enemies, what you need to do is you need to love them you need to forgive them, and you need to pray for them. Now, these two texts are both in Scripture. Now, what we do, which is usually wrong, is we ask this question. We say, well, which of these passages is clearer? And what we mean by that is, which one am I more comfortable with? Now, the, the problem with that is clarity is in the eye of the beholder. Because it depends what kind of week you're having, depending on which side of this coin you want to be. If you have a rough relationship with your boss, you're going to love genocide passages. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. Right? It all depends because it's so subjective. What we've got to do is we've got to take.
take ourselves away from that a step and ask questions like this. Which one of these texts is closer to the kingdom of God? Not which one is clearer so we can void the other one because they're both in there and we need to read both of them. Which one is clearer? Do we read the genocide passage in light of pray for your enemies or do we read the love and pray for your enemies in light of genocide? Which one goes in the front and which one goes in the back? And that is an incredibly healthy conversation for us to have. If we just decide, well, I like this one better because my confirmation bias is kicking in and I just think that one's a better verse for us to follow, that is usually a bad way to do, to do theology. It's always ironic to me as well. I've never heard a person, have you ever heard people that say, well, that's just what I read in my Bible, or that's just what it says. Yeah, that, that, that kind of is true, but it's kind of not as well, because what you're saying is, I've got one verse that is devoid of context, and it's amazing to me that people always find verses that complement what they already believe. Well, that's what my Bible says. Nobody's ever said, you know, well, I believe that tithing is a big deal, and God commands it, and it's something that we do, we see more than once in Scripture, but I just don't do it once. But it's right there. It's in black and white. It's in my Bible, but I'm just not going to practice that. It always only complements what we already believe. But we should ask the question, which one of these is closer to the kingdom of God? The last question we should ask is, what does the kingdom of God require? Because the kingdom of God requires us to do something. Because this is not about our belief system or who's right or who's wrong or who has the power. This is about where is the kingdom of God in the midst of this. And when you read the Bible, the kingdom of God becomes clear. Now let's talk about a controversial topic. Let's talk about women in the church. Because this is a big deal. There are passages that talk about a woman should be silent. A woman should learn in submission. She should, she should ask her own husband. Those are there. And then there's also passages like the Galatians 3 passage that says, In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, all these other kinds of things. Now, what we usually do is we usually pick the text that makes us feel the best, the one that we agree with. Most of us grew up in a certain context where we were taught something and we believe that. The ironic thing is this. The verses that we use for these things, the one right before it is about prayer, which we don't do. The one after it is about how we present ourselves. We ignore that one too, but we zone in on the one and we say, well, that one's clearer. Right, that's the passage that's clearer. That makes more sense. And what we really need to do is we need to ask, okay, where is the kingdom of God in this? Which one is in the front? Which one is in the back? Should we read Galatians 3, 28 in light of these passages? Or should we read these passages in light of that? We, we've got to stop asking the question, which one is clearer? Because when we ask that question, what we're usually saying is, I already agree with a certain viewpoint. This is my confirmation bias, and I'm going I'm to confirm what I already believe. But that doesn't ask the question, which one is closer to the kingdom of God? Because Peter was surprised by where the kingdom of God was going. And maybe the largest of all the questions is this. What does the kingdom of God require? What is the calling of the kingdom? Does the kingdom want us to live in this empire viewpoint? Or does the kingdom want us to take this seriously and move towards something that is powerful and difficult and messy. Because that's the place that we find God. 
kingdom theology is challenging theology. If you say, I want to be a child of the kingdom, God is going to push you in a way that you never thought. He's going to put you in a place you never thought you could go. Because that's what he does with Peter. That's what he does with Paul. That's what he does with every faithful follower. And if we as people want to build a robust and kingdom theology, we have to let go of some of our strongholds and some of our stereotypes. And it's only when we do that that we will actually be able to step into kingdom. That's what happens with Peter. He is standing on this side of the threshold where everything makes sense and everything fits in this box. And God says, but that's not where the kingdom is. The kingdom is on the other side. Do you have the courage to follow God past your agreement and your understanding? When Jesus talks about the narrow road, he's not just talking about people who find faith. He's saying, do you have courage in your heart to go where it is uncomfortable because that's where you'll find the kingdom. I promise you, if you're looking for the kingdom, it's not going to be in the places where you think it is or where it is right now. It's going to be across that threshold that's going to wreck your brain and open your life up to say, I cannot believe that this is how big the kingdom of God is. Now, if you want to stay on this side in your agreement and your understanding, which we all try to do at some point, we can never fully take hold of the kingdom of God because it's not on this side, it's on the other side. When we begin to ask this question, why do we follow Jesus? You ever wonder why we follow Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus towards kingdom and towards authority and towards equality? Mostly because we don't have it right now. That's why Galatians 3 verse 28 says, So in Christ, in Christ you're children of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And when you clothe yourself with Christ, you see the world differently because you see it with kingdom eyes. You don't see male and female and Jew and Gentile and black and white and rich and poor and young and old. You start with your identity in Jesus and we step into equality and we stop having some of these stupid arguments and we follow him into the kingdom. You know, for the Jews, I think one of the things that they realized at first is we don't, we don't follow Jesus because he's a man, even though that was right in his context. We don't follow him because he was a Jew, even though for them that was right. We don't follow him because he was, you know, upper middle class or that he was a little older and able to speak, speak to himself. People follow him because he is God, not because he is all these right stereotypes. He is God. This is what Thomas says when Jesus comes back after a week. He says, my Lord and my God, and that's why he follows. And that's why we should follow. And God's going to take us into kingdom, and it's going to be messy and uncomfortable and challenging and difficult, and it's going to be okay because he's going to meet us there because he is our father. We're not slaves. We're children. That's why Paul concludes the passage and says, you're no longer a slave. You're God's child. You get to cry out with the words that nobody used. You get to call him Abba or Father. That's why we cry those words, because God is our Father. I think when our theology is small, we're slaves. 
we look at our world and say, where is the kingdom of God? And we let go of our excuses and our challenges and our difficulties. We will find out where the kingdom of God is. And if we have the courage to step across the threshold, we will find God. And I want you to hear me today. I want you to find I want you to find the kingdom because that's what's lasting. Do you struggle with this? Because I do. Maybe sometimes the first step is the acknowledgement that we're not slaves anymore, but children. That we have a father, not a master. And we submit our lives Father, today, thank you for the patience of this group to give me some space to proclaim this. Father, today, I just pray that this would not just be an impassioned sermon, but it would be one that calls us into deep and real relationship with you. God, sometimes we're sitting on the fence, sometimes we're on the fringes, Sometimes we're just playing church or playing Christianity. And I pray that today in this moment that we would just be affirmed and realize that what we do matters, that the kingdom of God is a real thing and a powerful thing. And when we are willing to step across it, we will see the world in a new way. Father, may we see the kingdom on the faces of our children and on our coworkers and on people that we disagree with. May we look at people that we don't have a lot in common with and say, the kingdom of God is big enough for us to both have faith and to be children of God. May we hear that today. May we not get bogged down by the issues of the empire, but may we be willing to step into kingdom today. Father, would we all be a little introspective? Would we all take a minute to just proclaim in this moment that we are children, that you are our God, and that we will follow you into kingdom. Bless us as we proclaim that we are no longer slaves. We pray 